My little brother is eight years younger than me, and he was kind of the height of the baby boom. They had to build a new elementary school when, when he started. And I think we're going to have to build some more Sunday school classrooms with all of these wonderful kids now. Let me open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word, your word of truth that directs and guides our lives through the challenges of this world. We live in the wonder and the beauty of a world that comes from your infinite power and grace to create and from your mercy to sustain it, even though tarnished by sin. Father, we look forward to the renewal of all things when we will live in a truly wonderful world. But as we wait, I pray that we will be encouraged by your word and by each other to be stirred to love and good deeds, not to earn your acceptance, but because you have adopted us by your gift of faith in Jesus Christ and your incredible mercy and love. So, Father, may my words be your words to your people this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I like jazz music, and I don't admit this to many people, but I'm a fan of Louis Armstrong. What a Wonderful World is a song written by Bob Thiel and George Weiss. It was first recorded by Louis Armstrong in 1967, and the poetic lyrics begin with this. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You know, the melody is complex yet gentle that Weiss wrote for that. And I love the phrasing and the unique voice of Armstrong. But its romantic picture of a wonderful world lets us down when we understand that we're already standing on ground stained with sin. So how do we live as Christians in this wonderful yet tarnished world? And as we continue our Genesis series, the next episode in Jacob's life will instruct us by showing us how not to live and presenting the biblical alternative of how we can live in this world in a way that honors God. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to our text in Genesis 34. I've titled the message, Christian Living in a Fallen World. And the one big idea that I want to draw out this morning, it's on the top of your handout, is this. God displays his glory through those who are in, but not of, the world. Now, this idea of being in and not of the world comes from John 17, where Jesus prays for us in this way. To his Father, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So we're in the world for God's purposes, as Jesus prayed for us, and we glorify him by showing that we are not of the world in how we live. We enjoy seeing skies of blue and clouds of white and bright blessed day and dark sacred night. It is a wonderful world, but it's fallen, and the subtle desires tend to draw our hearts away from God. So we must learn to properly handle the desires in our hearts as we seek God's greater purposes for why he has placed us and sustains us in this world. Now, chapter 34 of Genesis begins a large section that summarizes the history of Isaac's family before his death that will be upcoming in chapter 35. Isaac plays an important role in the beginning with the birth of Esau and Jacob and in the passing of the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob in Genesis 28. Jacob then takes center stage until Isaac returns as I said in chapter 35, when he's reunited with Jacob at the end of his life. Jacob then exits the stage as his sons then carry the story forward. Now, Jacob's journey toward the reunion with his father is slow, and his delay is the cause of all the heartache and trouble that is ahead. And the first of these is the rape of Dinah, his daughter by Leah. So please stand as I read from this portion of God's Word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But when his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Please be seated, and may God bless the reading and the proclamation of his word to us this morning. Now, Genesis 34 highlights what happens when we allow fallen desires to control our actions. And we'll look at this problem from three perspectives. First, desires danger. Then, desires demands and then desires division. So the danger of desire, the demands that desire puts on us, and the division that desires can sometimes cause. And in the end, we'll see God's purpose in preserving this story for the original hearers, for believers throughout history, and for us even today as we live as Christians in this wonderful yet fallen world. 
So let's begin with dangerous desire. And it's clear from the opening verses here. Or I'm sorry, with desirous danger. It's clear from the opening verses. This tragedy, this rape does not come out of the blue, but is the result of a long line of ungodly desires leading to poor choices. Choices like Abraham and Sarah's desire to help God by Abraham fathering a child through Hagar instead of waiting for God's promise of a son through Sarah. We also see that, that Jacob and Rebekah had different desires for the Abrahamic promise that had been given to Isaac as Abraham's son. They desired different sons to receive that blessing, and they cheated each other to get their way. The boys grew up, twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob desired Esau's position. We know the results of that. Jacob had to flee. He flees north to Laban. Laban desires Jacob's labors. He cheats him out of his labors. Jacob desired Rachel, ignoring Leah. And Leah desired Jacob affection at the expense of her sister. And finally, these events happened to all come around so that Jacob now has settled in Shechem instead of Bethel, to which God had called him and to which Jacob had promised God he would settle. He settled here in Shechem east of, uh, of the, of the, um, on the east end of the east-west trade route so he can increase his wealth instead of obeying God and going to Bethel. So in a family from which the promised Messiah will come, it seems like desire and the problems that come with it is a family tradition. Now, as the story opens in chapter 34, Dinah's about 17 years old. And as the only daughter, she should be Jacob's greatest treasure. But when she wants to go and meet other young women in the city, Jacob allows her to go alone. Now, that would be unthinkable even today. But at that time, it was simply unimaginable. Perhaps Jacob was unaware of her departure. Or maybe, maybe because she's the daughter of the unloved Leah, he didn't really care. Now, predictably, disaster strikes. Shechem is introduced as a prince. He's the son of Hamor, the most powerful man in the region. He's a tribal leader. And he's a descendant of Ham's son, Canaan. So these are the Canaanites. Now, Shechem's rape of Dinah is described in quick and graphic words. He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her and humiliated her. Now, it's been argued that, that Dinah was seduced, not raped, but the text points in its wording to a, a, the idea of forcible rape, because the Hebrew word order here, saw and seized, is the same as in Genesis 3, when Eve saw and took or seized that fruit, and she ripped it from the forbidden tree. It's the same saw and seized that's used in Genesis 6, where we read about the sons of God 
seeing and desiring and taking to themselves the daughters of men. So Moses is putting great emphasis on this rape for purposes that we'll soon see. So here's our first fill-in then. Desires become dangerous when acting on them leads to sin. When acting on them leads to sin. Human desires run on a scale of, of good to evil, from helpful to hurtful. And James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shadow or changing. But God's gifts become tarnished when we use the gifts as a greater good instead of recognizing the giver. The world has many temptations, and our hearts are easily led astray. So when we combine the shiny things of this world with our fickle hearts, we become tempted. Our desires begin to rise up. And in that same passage where James speaks of God's good gifts, he warns about this temptation. He says this. He's, he says that we're tempted by being lured and enticed by our desires. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's important to examine the motivation behind our desires and to proceed carefully if we are uh, to live as Christians surrounded by the temptations of this world that seeks to draw us into it and away from God. So the danger of desire, understanding the danger there. Let's look at desire's demands. Now, to obtain what we desire always makes some kind of demand on us. In verse 3, Shechem seems to come to his senses after taking, seizing, laying with, and defiling Dinah. Comes to his senses, and he realizes he has genuine feelings for this woman. She's a, one, she's a pretty woman. So he longs for her, and he speaks tenderly to her. And like Samson would later say, Shechem demands of his father, get me this girl for my wife. Hamor desires to please his spoiled prince son, which demands that he go to Jacob and ask her for Dinah's, ask him for Dinah. So when the news of Dinah's defilement comes to Jacob, we would expect him to be outraged. But he's not. He's silent. Maybe he's stunned, but I think more likely, as I said earlier, um, he's, uh, she's Leah's daughter, and he doesn't care. So, but whatever the case, Jacob says nothing and waits for his sons to return from the field. So Hamor and Shechem come. Now the sons are there, and in contrast to Jacob's ambivalence, his 11 sons are outraged. 
In verse 7, Moses makes this comment. The sons of Jacob were indignant and very angry because he, Shechem, had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Now, there are two things to note in this short little passage. Uh, first of all, the Hebrew word translated as outrageous is a word that's reserved for some, something that's truly evil that literally rips apart the fabric of society. And second, this is the first time in the Bible when the word Israel is applied to all of Jacob's offspring. And that too will become important, important at the end of the story. So now stopping in the midst, or stepping into the midst of this, this bubbling cauldron of indifference and wrath, Jacob and his sons come Hamor and Shechem, hands out, so to speak. Uh, but Hamor never apologizes for his son's outrageous deed. Instead, he asks the Israelites to consider giving their sister to Shechem as a wife. It's pretty audacious when you think about it. But Hamor has a slight advantage. Dinah is still in Shechem's house, as we'll find out later in verse 26. So it was, was, it, was it rape and kidnapping, or is it seduction and cons consent? Now, we can't know everyone's motives here, but it shouldn't reduce the outrage that is properly felt over what's happened. But Hamor cleverly attempts to appeal to everyone's desires. In verse 9 and 10, he says, uh, Give Dinah to my son Shechem and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Now, Hamor is proposing to use this, this, this incident as an economic advantage for everyone. Like I said, the city was on the east-west trade route. It also had a, a fertile land for flocks. So the economic opportunities here are plentiful for everyone. We can all get along if we just put this little, little incident behind us here. And he, then Shechem steps in, and he sweetens the deal by offering to give anything they want as a bride price for Dinah. Now, in highly charged emotional situations like this, it's often difficult to think quickly and clearly. That's why, after we walk away from an argument, we can always think of 12 much more clever things that we could have said. But Jacob's sons think quickly, and they come up with a plan. They think it through, and they find a problem with Hamor's request. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. 
Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughter to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, each party in this conversation has a desire that's hidden in deception. Hamor desires to gain a bride for his spoiled son, and he makes a very tempting offer. The deception is in knowing that the Canaanites, his people, are much stronger than Jacob and his 11 sons. Live with us and intermarry and dwell with us, but his ultimate ulterior motive is he knows that they can absorb Israel into their culture and they will then absorb their wealth in addition. Hamor says as much to the men of Shechem in verse 23 as he tries to sell this, this deal. And you can imagine it would be a difficult sell. He says, hey, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Jacob's sons also have an agenda that's hidden in deceit. It's the desire for the revenge for their sister. And their deception is a counteroffer to Hamor. They say to him, well, we cannot do this thing unless you will become like we are. He circumcises, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if not, no deal. Now the sons, their desire is for revenge. It's hidden in this deceptive promise of intermarrying. And when the men of Shechem agree, their revenge, the sons of Jacob, their revenge is swift and decisive. Verse 25 and following. On the third day, when they, the men of Shechem, were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and they plundered. My friend Kendra Dahl recently wrote an article for Core Christianity, the website titled this, When Genesis Makes You Cringe. And this is certainly a cringe-worthy uh, account here. But here's the one truth that we can remember that the story shows us about our desires demands, that we, we can use and examine our motives before we act on the desires. And that brings us then to our second fill-in. Godly desires 
put our focus on others. Worldly desires demand we focus on ourselves. Godly desires serve others. Ungodly desires are selfish. That's our measure. The demand on Prince Shechem's desire for Dinah and Hamor's desire for Israel's wealth was for themselves and all the men to accept the religious rite of circumcised circumcision that promised no blessing to them. We've seen this before. The, the Abrahamic promise at this point in the redemptive story is not well understood, and it's thrown about like it's some sort of a magical talisman. So the men of Shechem, they see the shiny object of potential wealth and power by absorbing the Israelites into the Canaanite society, and their desire demanded they agree to this idea of circumcision, and that demand led to their death. The demand on Jacob's sons in their desire for revenge was to, was to lie and to sinfully use God's covenant marker to debilitate their enemies and then murder and plunder an entire city. This tragic event for all is explained, though, in the New Testament. When James writes this, he said, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, as Christians, we must continually examine our desires. They rise up in our hearts. We must continually examine our desires and measure them by the fact of, Will my desire, will acting on my, my desire serve others or serve just me? Will they serve God or just myself? So measuring then is a good thing for us to do. That brings us then to the final point, desires division. That's what we'll see next. Now, finally, the mute Jacob speaks as the head of the family, but he doesn't express moral outrage. Instead, he offers this gem of moral wisdom. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Wonderful, Jacob. Good way to raise the kids. He doesn't rebuke them for murder, he doesn't rebuke them for plundering the city. He doesn't rebuke them for using God's sacrament of circumcision as a weapon. That's like inviting someone to be baptized and then drowning them. He makes no statement of their sin. He simply rebukes them for the tactical error that has put him at risk. 
Eight times in these two sentences, he makes reference to himself by the use of the pronouns I, me, and my. Boys, that was a terrible thing you did. Look what the, the effect it could possibly have on me and my and I. Now, in response, Simeon and Levi rebuke Jacob. They say, you know, should, we, should Shechem treat your, not your daughter, but our sister, like a prostitute? In other words, Jacob, we had to go and defend our sister. If you had defended her, we wouldn't have had to do that. It's your fault. Everyone's dangerous desires and the self-serving demands to meet those desires has further divided this family. And once again, Jacob's silent. He seems to accept their lame self-justification that went far beyond the original offense, didn't it? Remember, Shechem had come hat in hand. He didn't apologize, but he was at least trying to make restitution. Did that then demand a response from Jacob's sons to kill them all, an entire city, and plunder it? Who made them the divine judge in this situation? Where would they have been if Esau and his 400 men had responded this way when their father Jacob went hat in hand asking for Esau's forgiveness? You know, it's up and down. It's success and it's failure. What are we to make of Jacob's life? Uh, this is a patriarch. One minute he's Israel, faithfully wrestling with and following God. The next he's compromising, and he's the compromised bystander to an atrocity. What are we to think other than he looks like us? Maybe our ups aren't as high as his, nor our downs as deep as his. But that only means that we're mediocre saints and we're mediocre sinners. But here's the good news. God does not abandon Jacob. Just the opposite, as we'll see in the next chapter. God leads Jacob safely to Bethel and then to be reuni then on to be reunited with his father Isaac because God has purposed to bring his blessing to all the peoples of the earth through Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and on down through the family line and nothing Jacob or anyone else after him can ever do will stop the tide of time and events that will bring God's bless blessing in the person of Jesus the eternal son and savior born into this line of people this line of atrocious sinners 
not mediocre. They were great sinners. Well, that brings us then to the final fill-in. We will fall to worldly desires and the division it brings, but God in Christ will never let his people be divided from him. And as my friend used to say, boy, howdy, that's good news. That's good news. We will fall. We'll make poor choices from sinful desires. It will bring division. It will put demands. But God in Christ will never let us be divided from him. Yeah. In John 10, 28, Jesus says this of his people. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is God's wonderful promise to us. Now, God inspired Moses to write Genesis as he led Jacob's descendants through the wilderness toward the promised land. And for them, the story had two primary purposes. The first was to show who had formed them out of the entire mass of lost and fallen people, out of a idolatrous world, who had formed them and preserved them, not because they were greater than others, nor more numerous than others, but because God did it. He preserved them because he chose them. And second, it explained their checkered history. And it taught them how not to live. And then God gave them the gift of the law to guide them in the temple worship so that he could be with them. God determined to display his glory through his people being in the world but not of the world. In some ways, that's the tragedy of what the 11 sons did. You can't get too far into this, but what if they had evangelized Shechem and Hamath? But this text was a explanation to Israel of who they were and why they were created. And this purpose continues down to today, this purpose of showing us that God has preserved us, formed us and preserved us and is with us. It continues down to today. So how are we to live as Christians in a fallen world? That's the question we began in. 
began with. It's by listening to God through his word, which explains this wonderful yet fallen world. He gives us the moral law and the ability to recognize and avoid wrong desires. He gives us the power to pursue the right ones. As we build each other up, creating community, as we've been studying in our home fellowship groups, by praying for one another, by proclaiming to one another, and even by admonishing one another. We build community and we advance his kingdom when we do it. And when we stumble, we have the Holy Spirit to bring us back to our Savior who is constantly interceding as our advocate before the Father. In Sunday school, we talked about David's throne and how the the booth of David's throne had fallen and how it will be raised up again and how Jesus will sit on David's eternal throne. Well, guess what? He's sitting on David's throne now. Now. He's reigning and ruling now. And he's interceding as our advocate before the Father because he has been given a people. No one will snatch them out of his hand and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father's hand is even more powerful, and He and the Father are one. So Genesis 34 is a difficult story, but it contains the warnings we need about the nature and the consequences of our desires. And it gives us the assurance in knowing that nothing, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else at all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul said. God has placed us here for his glory. That's a great privilege we have. And We will be glorified forever when our work is through. But in the meantime, we live as Christians in but not of this wonderful, yet fallen, yet to be restored world. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your common grace that causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on all people. In this way, we can enjoy this wonderful world, but we are especially grateful for your special grace that opens our eyes to the reality of the challenges that we face in a fallen world. Father, we long to glorify you by living as salt and light to those around us. Father, we're grieved for those who are not yet able to see the problem of our sin and the promise of your solution through Jesus Christ. So, Father, remind us uh, to examine our desires so that we serve others as you have served us. Help us to be that salt and light so that those around us can see the joy and the glory of knowing Jesus as Savior. And Father, assure us through your spirit of your promise to redeem and restore our world to beyond wonderful, to the 
perfection that you have always intended for it. Father, we thank you for these sure promises and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And it's in him, his name that I pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you'll stand.